Hello. In 1998, Bill Clinton, the president of America, was accused of being unfaithful to his wife. On the 28th of January 1998, and you can watch this on YouTube, he looks his interviewer in the eye and he says these words, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. He was lying. He had. The man leading one of the most powerful nations in the world was straight up lying to his own people. In the legal process that followed, Clinton insisted that what he'd said was true, depending on what was meant by sexual relations. Maybe he tricked himself into believing that he wasn't lying. And maybe that's even more scary. But this is the world that we live in. There are liars everywhere. Our own government and rulers lie to us. In my own culture in the West, people aren't even surprised anymore. We expect our leaders to lie to us. And even if they're not directly lying to us, they make promises that they genuinely intend to keep, but fail. Now, before we blame our leaders and see the problem as something out there, I'm the same. And so are you. Because I've lied. I've twisted the truth. I've promised things that I've been unable to keep. And I regret it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn survived the forced labor camps of Russia that existed from 1918 to 1956. He puts it brilliantly. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. The problem isn't a group of liars out there. The problem is a human problem. We're all liars. We're all untrustworthy. Not to everyone and not all the time, but we still lie. And how can we as people sort this out if none of us meet the standard of telling, always telling the truth? I studied philosophy at university and in my second year as part of the logic paper that I did, we looked at what truth actually was and it was unbelievably tricky. There were all sorts of things like disquotationalism or correspondence and all that stuff. And I'm sure a lot of it was useful. But we as people can't sort out the problem of truth on our own. So it comes as brilliant news that God is not like us. He isn't like Bill Clinton. He isn't like me. And he isn't like you. In a fascinating section of the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, a man called Balaam blesses the Jewish people and he says this, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Sadly, we don't have enough time today to look at the whole section of numbers that this occurs in. But because this is a true statement about God, and because God doesn't change, we can safely assume that it's true of God today. First, that means that God doesn't lie. He tells the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Every single thing that he has ever said is true. Praise God. And second, God doesn't promise something and not see it through. He promises and he does. Nothing he has ever said he is going to do will not get done. Praise God. God is glorious in truth. 
People all around us, whether they realize they're doing it or not, manipulate the truth to benefit themselves. But we have a source of complete truth. We have a pure spring of water we can drink from any time we like that we're certain can never be poisoned. What God says is true. Full stop. So we know that everything God says is true. We know that everything he says is trustworthy. So the next question to ask is, how do we listen to him? Well, let's open the Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In just a moment, we're going to dig into chapter 3, verse 14 to 4, verse 4 in detail. But for now, we're just going to zoom into one little phrase at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. This tiny phrase just drips with significance. Because just using what we've looked at together so far, we're ready to reach a huge conclusion. Follow this little argument with me. God is glorious in truth. Everything that he says is true. And now verse 16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed, spoken out by God. That means that everything that the Bible says is true. God is so unbelievably kind to us. He's given us a book which is truth from start to finish. Question, how do we listen to God? Answer, we read the Bible. And because of that, one of the single most important things we can do in our entire lives is to understand what the Bible is. And the Bible is God speaking through his spirit about his son to call us into relationship with him. That's so important. I'm going to say it again. The Bible is God speaking through his spirit about his son to call us into relationship with him. It's made up of 66 books. It was written over at least a thousand years. It's got a number of different human authors and there are several different genres that it's written in. It's described as wonderful, a delight, a counsellor, comforting, lovely, the theme of a song, righteous, more precious than silver and gold, trustworthy, eternal, boundless, sweeter than honey, a lamp, the joy of someone's heart, awesome, thoroughly tested and sustaining. And that's literally just Psalm 119. Because the Bible is God speaking, all of the words in the Bible are God's very words. Herman Bavinck was a Dutch theologian and he beautifully puts it like this. Holy Scripture is not an arid story or an ancient chronicle, but the ever-living, eternally youthful word, which God, now as always, issues to his people. It's the eternally ongoing speech of God to us. It does not just tie us to the past, it binds us to the living Lord in the heavens. It was not only God-breathed, but it is God breathing. So when we read Numbers 23 verse 19, and when we read 2 Timothy 3 verse 6, God was speaking to us. Maybe that's the first time we've thought about it like that. Maybe you've always thought of it as an ancient document or a book about God or a list of commands or some nice stories or whatever, but no, it's God speaking to us. It's like a phone that is always ringing, we pick up, and it's God on the other end. For some of us, though, this might be old news, and if that's us, we need to push just a little bit further to get us to stand in awe of what we have in front of us. God talked, 
and the universe came into existence. Galaxies, quantum mechanics, waterfalls, llamas, DNA, all began because of God's voice. That's exactly the same God that spoke to you personally when you read the Bible. Friends, this truly is glorious. We don't need to pray that God will speak when we read the Bible. He will speak. We just need to pray that we will have ears to listen to him. And remember our definition. The Bible is God speaking through his son and through his spirit about his son to call us into relationship with him. That means that God doesn't just speak to tell us what to do, although, of course, we will obey him if we love him. No, he calls to us. He invites us to either begin a relationship with Jesus for the first time or to deepen the relationship that we already have every time we open the Bible. He calls us to Jesus. His words in the Bible are words of relationship. So now let's return to 2 Timothy to see what else God says about the Bible as truth. 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young co-worker Timothy. And like the name suggests, it's the second one that he's written to him. It's an emotional letter written in roughly 65 AD. Paul is close to dying and he urges Timothy to fulfill his ministry, to preach the Bible faithfully and to suffer for the sake of the gospel spreading. And in this letter, Paul particularly emphasizes that the Christian life is one of suffering. It's a life of looking forward to when Jesus comes back, not a life of perfect happiness now. God will make a new creation where those who follow Jesus will never suffer again. But that's to look forward to, not now. It's important to remember, we'll come back to it. So let's dig into 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 to Chapter 4, verse 4. First, we're going to focus in on 3, verse 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In verses 14 to 17, we're told that not only is the Bible true because it's God-breathed, verse 16, but that the Bible is also enough. It's enough. First, the Bible gives us enough to first become Christians. In the words of verse 15, the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. This has special importance that, again, we're going to look at in a moment. Second, the Bible is enough to follow Jesus as well as we possibly can. Verses 16 to 17 show us that through reading and applying the Bible, we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. That small word, every, is so significant. It means that the Bible might not tell us everything that we want to know, but it does tell us absolutely everything about what matters most. It is enough so that we can do everything in a way pleasing to God. The Bible is 
enough. Second, let's focus in on chapter 4, verse 1 to 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Here, Paul urges Timothy in the strongest possible language to preach the word of God, to preach the truth. In verse 1, Paul says that Timothy should do his ministry in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back to judge the world. He could come back today. He really could. And when he does, only those trusting that Jesus bore the punishment for their sin on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago will be safe. And if you aren't or you're not sure if you are, then hold on to the end of this sermon and I'll talk about how you can respond today. Verse two, in light of this coming judgment and the fact that the Bible is enough, Paul is saying to Timothy he should teach it in all its fullness and colour and vividness. He should pour his life into this goal. And then verses three to four, man, they almost leap out of the Bible at us. They so clearly describe our world. People don't change, do they? Verse three, people don't like sound doctrine. People don't like truth. People don't like what the Bible says. And so there'll never ever be a lack of false teachers. Whether they're pastors, celebrities, politicians, writers or whatever, they will teach what people want to hear, what people are itching to listen to, not the truth. Now we might not like what the Bible says about certain things, And where that's the case, we've got to have the humility to realise that God is right. The Bible is right and we're wrong. We should say to God, I'm sorry that I find what you say here hard. Please change my heart so that I begin to love what you love. And friends, here are two, two warnings about false teachers. One, false teachers don't think that they're false teachers. On the whole, they're not people who are deliberately trying to mislead. They really believe what they're teaching. And two, false teachers don't often directly contradict Scripture. They take it and twist, taking words out of context, emphasizing things of lesser importance, sweeping hard truths under the rug. There'll be a huge number of false teachers that that do profess that they believe in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Now, false teaching rears its ugly head in every single culture, in every single tradition. Liberal Christianity is a form of false teaching. You know, what the Bible teaches about sex and gender is fine for people back then, but we know better now. Come on, the Bible doesn't really talk about hell. What kind of loving God wouldn't welcome everyone into heaven? Yeah, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Even the very heart of Christianity has come under attack from this form of false teaching. Penal substitution is the fact that on the cross, all of God's wrath that should have poured out on me and on you 
poured out on the willing Jesus instead of us. So that the punishment for sin has been fully paid by Jesus. What a precious truth. But Steve Chalk, in his 2003 book, The Lost Message of Jesus, Jesus, describes penal substitution as cosmic child abuse. The prosperity gospel is a form of false teaching. If you have enough faith, you won't get ill. If you have enough faith, you won't suffer. If you have enough faith, everyone you pray for for healing will get healed. Being prosperous is a reward from God for following him faithfully. It's usually based on taking passages out of context like the beloved, often for the wrong reasons, Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Examples of this include Joel Osteen, an American pastor. He wouldn't describe himself as a prosperity preacher and I'm sure he also says things that are right. But be careful. He also says things like, when you focus on being a blessing, God makes sure that you are always blessed in abundance. What nonsense. How much does that contrast with Paul's true gospel? Remember that the gospel throughout 2 Timothy is one of suffering now, looking forward to the new creation. Timothy's motivation is to be found in verse 1. Itching ears don't matter. One day, Timothy will have to stand in front of God. And if he's preached something untrue, a false gospel, he'll have to explain why a number of men and women have been led astray by him and not trusted in Jesus. But verse 4, friends, don't be alarmed. Remember that the Bible is glorious in truth. Remember that people will always wander away from the truth. It's been going on for centuries. It's nothing new. Part of the goal of this series is to point out that so many replace the real God with one that, w- with one that appeals to what they want, a watered-down God who will approve of everything that I like. As for us, we trust that the Bible is glorious in truth. This means that so long as we've done our homework and we've come to the right understanding of a Bible passage, and if our church leaders conflict with that passage, and scientists conflict with that passage, and historians conflict with that passage, and philosophers conflict with that passage, the Bible wins out. It's the very standard by which we measure all claims about truth. So Paul writes 2 Timothy 3.14 to 4 verse 4 so that Timothy might devote himself to reading the Bible and teaching it to others. Now we can't always directly go from the text to us. We've always got to go to the original context first. In this case, Paul writing to Timothy. But I think that we can apply devoting ourselves to reading the Bible and teaching it to others. Not all of us will or should speak from the front. Not all of us will or should lead small group Bible studies, but all of us can help each other understand and apply the Bible to our own lives. First then, I urge you in the strongest possible terms to devote yourself to reading the Bible. It's truth, all of it. There is no created object we can treasure more than scripture. Maybe we have a lot of possessions. Maybe we don't have any possessions. But if we have the Bible, friends, we are rich. There can be nothing more important than listening to God, growing an enjoyment of him and obeying what he commands. You will never regret time you spend reading the Bible. 
Remember that verses 16 to 17 pointed out that by reading and prayerfully applying the Bible, we're equipped for absolutely everything. We'll be ready for the false teachers and the lies that they tell. I remember at the end of my first year of university, I finally committed to reading the Bible daily for myself and it signaled an explosion of growth in Jesus. This is the thing that moved me from being really lukewarm in my faith to really going for it. The American Bible teacher, John Piper, was recently asked at a conference, what would you do if you were 22 again? He wrote an article answering that question and one of his six answers was this. It's absolutely brilliant. I would make Bible reading more important than eating and getting exercise and kissing my wife. There have been about 18,340 days since I turned 22, and I think I've read my Bible on more of those days than I've eaten. I've certainly read my Bible on more of those days than I've watched television or videos. I've read my Bible on more of those days than I've kissed my wife, because I've been away from my wife often, but I've almost never been away from the Bible. Now, some of us respond better to warnings rather than encouragements. I'm definitely in that camp. So here's a little warning. The bottom line is if, if we're not regularly engaging with the Bible, then we're telling God that we know what he likes better than he does. We might do all sorts of religious things, ways of speaking and doing things that we think honor God because we see other people doing them. But these could be based on our own imaginations rather than God's truth. It might not even have occurred to us that these patterns of life don't please him. So Tom, all well and good, mate, but how do you go about doing it? Read it every day. Read it every day. And by that, I don't just mean open up at, a ran at random, read something for a couple of minutes and stop feeling guilty. I don't mean having a verse of the day app or something like that, good as those things are. I mean, devote yourself to the journey of reading the Bible every day. Think of it like weightlifting. We start with a bit and we build up over time to do more. If I went straight into the gym and I loaded up the squat rack with all of the weight in the gym and stepped up there, I would actually die. Reading a smaller chunk daily is better than reading a much larger chunk every so often. If you're just starting out, commit to reading for five minutes a day. Start John's Gospel and keep reading it each day until you finish it. Then move on to 1 Peter. As time goes on, you'll quickly discover you can and want to read more each day. So then increase the amount of time that you're reading for. Give God's Word your best time. When are you most able to focus? Put it in the diary each day and don't let anything infringe on it. I'm not a morning person at all, but I get up early to read the Bible before I go to work because it's just when I'm best able to concentrate. And aim to read Bible books from start to finish. As we read, we should be thinking, what is the main idea of this passage that the author wanted to get the original readers to understand? Have a notebook by your side when you read uh, and uh, have an insatiable thirst to know God better. Write down every question that comes to mind, big or small. Don't let any question you have about anything you read go unanswered. Ask Christians you know who have a great grasp of Scripture. Ask your elders. Um, if you have access to them, read what commentaries have to say in the passage. Whatever it takes to find out what it means. And the more we read the Bible the more that we will love it. 
We come to delight in the themes, the poetry, the shadows and types of Jesus, the unraveling storyline, all of which points to the glorious in truth God who speaks through his word. Second, devote yourself to being taught the Bible by others and to teaching others. We don't do the Christian walk on our own. Now, talking to other Christians about their families, hobbies, and jobs is really important to developing relationships. But we must make sure that we're talking about the Bible with them too. So ask one another, what are you enjoying most about God at the moment? What Bible book are you reading at the moment? What are you finding hard to obey in the Bible at the moment? Are you able to read the Bible each day? And I get that that might seem weird to begin with, But if we really love one another, we'll care about our brothers and sisters' spiritual lives most. And read the Bible together. Why not commit to reading through a book of the Bible with a friend? Try to find the main thrust of what the book is saying by reading it again and again and discussing it. Put into practice what you read. After I'm done speaking, why don't you message a Christian you know and ask them if they want to do that with you? Finally, If you'd not yet call yourself a Christian or you're not sure if you are, well, first, well done for making it this far through. Like I said earlier, as Christians, we believe that Jesus could come back today. And it's only those trusting that Jesus bore the punishment for our rejecting him on the cross who will be safe. Because of that, I hope you see why we believe it's really urgent that you look into it. Start reading John's gospel. If you've got a Christian friend, Ask to do it with them. And as you read, ask yourself, do I believe that this is true? If this didn't really happen, what would be my explanation for it? Particularly focus on Jesus' resurrection at the end of the book. Because knowing Jesus for yourself is open to you today. If you admit that you've rejected God until now, believe in who Jesus is and what he did and commit to following him for the rest of your life. If you would call yourself a Christian, then because the Bible is God speaking through his spirit about his son to call us into relationship with him, we should expect people to encounter Jesus as they read the Bible. So today, start a new habit. Think of anybody who's ever expressed interest in the fact that you're a Christian. Say to them, hey, you know Jesus is the most important thing in my life. I think the best way to find out about him is to read one of the eyewitness accounts of his life. Do you want to do that together? You don't have to commit to reading it all, but we could start and you could see what you think. It's exactly what I did with a really close friend of mine in my final year of university, and he became a Christian, and he's gone on to to lead all sorts of wonderful things. It does happen. God loves to do that. Well, I'm going to finish now by reading out one more passage of Scripture. So what we've looked at so far is that God is glorious in truth, Therefore, the Bible is glorious in truth. So let's devote ourselves to reading it and teaching it to others. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says this. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Amen.